breaking news in the sports world. The Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, has selected a new name to represent the franchise. When asked what he considered while selecting the name, Dan Snyder commented on the necessity that this name strike fear into the hearts of the nation. And I quote, What could be more terrifying after the year 2020 than the embodiment of that of which turned our world upside down? End quote. From this day forth, the Washington football team will be known as the Washington Virus. A name that grows exceedingly clever when you consider the double meaning. That's right, the District of Columbia shall be a plague upon the football field, as it has often been a plague upon the freedoms of this nation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Logan Carpenter here with Matthew Billingsley again for another episode of Against the Mob podcast. Uh, today, we're going to take our first dip into a, a very complex and deep topic. Um, we're going to kind of give a general overview of the libertarian view of immigration uh, and open borders, uh, what our views on that are, and I guess ultimately what we're going to get into is why the state itself has made this uh, an untenable situation for us to actually open up the borders. Uh, due to the current uh, amalgamation of our social safety nets uh, and prohibition laws. Um, and we're planning on taking some deeper dives later on into this topic into more specific areas. Uh, so today what we're doing is kind of going over a basic overview of what the libertarian view of immigration is and kind of uh, just a, a general sense of where we stand on this issue. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about it. And uh, we're hoping to do a pretty comprehensive series over the next several weeks, uh, diving into some of these more complex issues, hopefully bring on Matt Mitchell to talk about some economics of immigration. But um, before we get going, as always, guys, go order some damn coffee. Simple as that. You guys know them. You guys know about them. Lorenzotti.coffee. Go check them out. Find something that you like. If you like it, tell a friend. I'm sipping on some right now because we are recording this on... Um, what is today? Tuesday morning. It's now Tuesday morning. I had to think about this. Um, I almost corrected you and said it was Monday morning. I'm also right. off. <laughs> it's just, um, it's, it's a morning. I live in a perpetual like Wednesday. So I'm um, sipping on some right now. We got our morning going with it. You guys should too. Check them out. Lawrence 10% off using the promo code ATM10. Alrighty, let's hop into it. So in today's episode, like Logan said, we want to explore a little bit of the philosophy about immigration. And, um, you know, we might meander to some interesting side tangents about migration because you guys know us. It's hard for us to stay on one particular topic. Um, on the order debate. Than just the state is allowing or ruining by being involved in this particular aspect of human life. And so immigration in, in a libertarian society, it's it's a really complex issue, right? And um, it's we're not going to be able to boil it down into a nice digestible form. That's why we want to do several episodes. But immigration, like most things in this world, is neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. It just simply is. And um, it can have both positive or negative effects on a society. That's right. And ultimately, as libertarians, the knee-jerk reaction to immigration is open immigration, pro-immigration, um, that we don't necessarily have any right or claim to this land just because the government we were born under has drawn lines on a map saying that this is in fact the property of the United States. Um, and we would even argue that we're probably the most pro-immigration party that uh, Democrats and Republicans are um, either for open borders in this welfare situation that is basically untenable because of the, uh, the burden upon the taxpayers within this country. Um, or of course, the Republicans seem to uh, be concerned about the blue wave coming from the southern border, and they just seem to want to shut it down altogether. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. There's something going outside my window. I was distracted by it. I was trying to figure out what was going on. Um, yeah, and this immigration's one of those difficult paradigms to really try to attack because Democrats want open borders and the welfare state. And I think that, and we'll get into that later, that those two things are incompatible. But then Republicans want to restrict immigration, but that's not necessarily like a good positive platform either. And it is interesting that the libertarian position is just like yep, open, open borders officially. I'm not, well, is it open borders officially or is it just freedom of movement for all nonviolent people? And that's part of why we wanted to take several episodes to discuss this because there is argument on both sides of this in the libertarian uh, world. Um, like I said earlier, the kind of knee jerk reaction is open borders that, in a, a perfect libertarian world, we wouldn't have the need for all these lines on a map because everything would be parsed out into private property and that you yourself could own land, generate wealth out of it, make it more valuable uh, and keep people off of it if you saw fit. But that these large swaths of government land wouldn't be keeping people from being able to move to a more prosperous area where they might be able to set up a better life for their own family. Um, so there, there is some back and forth. I don't think there's a a clearly stated uh, direction of it. Um, although I think most libertarians do lean towards free movement and open borders uh, just with the caveat that because of our current system in America, uh, it's untenable because we have such a large social safety net um, that would encourage people simply to move in and be non-producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's once again, the state has, has taken something and made it more complex and definitely diluted it and just just mucked it up like the state does what it does best. And so, yeah, it's it is really interesting, too, because if we look at if we look at freedom of movement, it also it follows the same travel, follows the same line of like freedom of goods, freedom of information um, flow. It, it follows that same that same vein. And so my knee-jerk reaction, too, is like, well, I mean, freedom of movement is a natural human right, right? Like, even though it's not spelled out in the uh, the Bill of Rights, I do have the right. If I want to pick up and I want to travel to California, um, they do have nice beaches there. I was about to say, I don't know why I'd want to be in California, but they do have some really nice beaches there. Um, but I, I have the right to. Or if I want to go down to Louisiana and go hang out in New Orleans, you know, um, I have that right. Um, but anyways, it's, it's, it's interesting though, because what happens is where do we draw the line between like a state enforced national boundary that is arbitrary and, you know, violently imposed. And then where do we, and where does that stop? Right. Where is that line between like, well, is this legitimate? Because, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's something I want to cover later. <laughs> <laughs> we will dive into that later. And, and that's uh, essentially there were three big things that kind of jump out to me as where the state stands in the way of us having having open borders. Of course, the first one we've already mentioned, the welfare state. Um, it's not tenable to have a situation where you can say, hey, if you're not able to produce for yourself and survive within an area that the the social safety net will take care of you. And I'm not arguing that that's necessarily a bad thing. I can definitely see where people's hearts are in the right place to create these social safety nets. I mean, ultimately it is to attempt to uh, create a society where we don't leave anybody behind, where just because you're an orphan or widowed or uh, crippled within a war um, that you fought for the America, that you would still have the ability to live a fulfilling life, even though you couldn't necessarily produce the goods you would need to, to do so. Um, now, obviously, we fall short in a lot of areas, even with said social safety net, where we're not mm -hmm. taking care of uh, specifically the veterans comes to mind in that particular example. Um, the second one I, I really thought about is, of course, our foreign policy. Uh, and you hear a lot of people say this when it comes to immigration, where you can't have open borders because what happens with the terrorists, uh, all these. And we hear about these uh, millions and millions of uh, potential terrorist attacks that are stopped by all these major programs at the border and the TSA. And uh, they're all, of course, classified. So you can't prove out that uh, there were nearly as many as they claim there are. But mm -hmm. there is at least the claim of that. And I'm sure that there has been several attacks stopped. Um, but the real root of this issue, something we like to talk about is the blowback, uh, that these issues of terrorism wouldn't exist in the first place if we didn't have troops in every single country all over the globe when we're disposing of uh, 
dictators and and duly elected democratic officials that we don't find favorable here in America because they decide they want to go off the petrol dollar at some point in time uh, and we have to nuke them out of existence or back into the stone age in order to keep the American dollar afloat because of our uh, beautiful federal reserve system. Uh, And I understand that argument, but again, I think that kind of comes back to a state generated issue where we have to protect against terrorism that our state itself has generated and often funded with our own tax dollars. Uh, And then the last one there would be kind of the prohibition. We all are pretty well aware, especially those of us in the South here of the issues with drug cartels along the border. Um, there's horror stories every year of people who, uh, their kids decide rather than flying their white faces into Cancun, they decide to take a road trip down there and they, uh, run into the wrong unsavory individuals and, and things go South for them. Um, and again, this is something that the state itself has generated. They've decided to prohibit certain substances that there's going to be, regardless of this prohibition, a demand for. Uh, And rather than allowing the private sector and people to make decisions for their own lives on whether or not they would like to partake in these drugs that the government has deemed dangerous for them, uh, that they simply prohibit it, which leads to massive drug cartels. Um, It's what all the uh, love for Chicago crime families and New York crime families is the same thing. It was prohibition of alcohol that ultimately made these drug cartels and gangs as powerful as they were by creating uh, a bottleneck in the supply Uh, where the demand, though it may dip with prohibition, never actually goes away. Uh, And I think that that's another issue that it's difficult to open up these borders with your current prohibition laws, because then you're allowing still for this niche market to exist where these drug cartels are going to exploit it. But at the same time, you're opening borders and allowing it to become easier for them to traffic said drugs into the country and uh, giving them more avenues. So those policies, and we'll, we'll try to brush into each of them a little deeper as we go through just this overview as well. But with those policies in place by the state, it does work in contrast to us being able to have open borders. Yeah, those things definitely stand um, opposed. Those, those issues do make an open border extremely difficult. Um, so something that, well, okay, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll table that thought for, for a little bit later. So I think that it's it's interesting as always, you know us, we always like to hop into a little bit of historical framework and set up the conversation from where we've come from. And the history of immigration in the United States is definitely shifted, but it's also not as it's not as clear cut today as we like to argue, right? And so in nineteen in nineteen oh seven, less than half of the immigrants spoke English as compared to 84% of having some level of English. And this was pulled um, from 2017. And, you know, that goes contrary to the common belief that immigrants are taking, um, you know, that they're less likely to assimilate in American culture. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting to read because there's certainly a sentiment of, well, we can't just open borders up because we're going to have, a complete deterioration of what American culture is. Uh, And Matthew and I had a really interesting talk about that in prepping for this and that, where do you draw that line? If you're really worried about the deterioration of American culture, how far back do you go before you, I mean, is it the Puritans when there were 13 colonies and you say it's, you know, that's where it all went awry. We started letting these uh, Jewish and Irish immigrants in and they brought all these ideas, these German immigrants who wanted to just farm and uh, live the the life they wanted to live and this deteriorated the American culture or is it, you know, certainly there's probably a racial aspect in that where some people are just looking at brown people coming into the country and therefore they're going to destroy this wonderful white culture we have when that's Gosh, not in fact, brown skins. <laughs> when, well, obviously that's not what American culture is. Um, I think there's also a very interesting argument to go into and, and we didn't do a ton of research on this to really parse this out, but um cultural appropriation tends to get a bad rap. It's got this uh, negative connotation to it. And I think that it's seen a shifting of its definition in the same way we've talked about racism has had that same shift where racism is any prejudice against a group of people based on their ethnicity. And then they've added the caveat in recent years with the woke brigade of specifically majorities against minorities, which Mm -hmm. isn't really needed. It doesn't add to the definition, but what it does is it excludes, uh, at least a a non-thinking person from (laughs) being able to include white people in America in uh, being able to have anybody be racist against them or prejudiced against them, which I think is uh, simply silly. But in that same way, cultural appropriation has become this thing that is uh, the caveat to it being that you're using other people's culture. uh, And I guess the caveat piece being 
negatively or not understanding the culture that it comes from. Yeah, um, it's it, well, it just makes me wonder. I had several questions pop up in my mind, like what is American culture? First and foremost, right? Like what is, what is an American culture? Because we are not a homogenized society. Like we're, we do not have a French, we don't, you know, we don't have that same, that same binding history as other nations have, right? Where it's like, this is Spanish culture. And we have this, and this is developed over thousands of years or hundreds of years of sharing a similar place with similar language, right? Like America is a, a melting pot. And that's what makes us, that's what makes us super that's what makes this country really interesting. And I think really diverse and rich in a lot of ways is that we do have that, we do have that, that assimilation of people, but then also it's like this, this term, like when you say cultural appropriation, like that is like, isn't that essentially history? It is the movements of goods and ideas and people across cultures and it's cultures interacting and taking what they like from it and leaving the rest. Right. So like when Marco Polo goes to China, he, or, you know, like that, I think. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about a, a nice uh, fettuccine Alfredo? Because uh, it took a lot of uh, Italian traders going to China to discover the noodle in order for that to become. So do we demonize the Italians for appropriating Chinese culture? <laughs> Exactly. And spices and things like that. And so I think that I just don't like this whole, I, I reject the argument that um, the opponents of immigration say, because they're like the movement of people to this country dilutes the culture. And for me, it's like, what is like, I need someone to actually define what American culture is. And I think that that's also what makes us super cool is that you can go to these large metropolitan areas and even out in in the countryside to a lesser extent um, where you can go to little Dominica, you know, you can go to Chinatown, you can go find, you can go hang out in little Sicily, right? We can do all of these cool things. And it's awesome that people have been able to assimilate into this country while keeping a certain aspect of their culture and their heritage preserved. And I mean, I think that that's beautiful. And so I'm definitely not um, this whole idea of like immigration and culture just like I, that one doesn't sit that I just don't understand that one. And I, I think there's a pretty strong case too, of some of the most beautiful things we've ever had come from this idea of cultural appropriation, or at least uh, adopting, maybe there's a, a different term someone would use for it when it's uh, not trying to demonize somebody at their college cultural campus blindy, that they're mad at cultural blending, which I think that's a, to me is basically the same term. It's just that one is, been created in recent years to give a negative connotation to it. Uh, but that's the world over. I mean, where would the world be if we could not appropriate each other's cultures, technologies, and further ourselves as a human race? I mean, everything we've done are, is, uh, does America have claim to the automobile and the airplane over all other cultures because it started here? Is that something that we should, <laughs> should tell <laughs> other people that they can't appropriate the American culture? It's, it's a silly idea. Um, and it's interesting that it, that same line of thinking comes from the type of people who would typically be for open borders. And yet everybody come into a new country, I guess, and then plot out your land and don't interact with anybody else. Um, I think that's where we differ a lot as libertarians, uh, people who believe in a voluntary society versus people who simply are for open borders because they uh, are part of the, the hyper left who just think that it's, it's wrong. Um, I think there's a, a beautiful thing to come from all this blending and a strengthening aspect as well. Um, I think that's also a, a good case to be made when it comes to the history of immigration in the U.S., where we used to have a system that was a lot closer to what we're going to kind of propose here as libertarians, that you have an open border policy where you take in just about anybody. Uh, you know, of course, you need to not have a bunch of people all over the world that are pissed off at you and want to kill you for you having drone bombed their grandma. Uh, it helps. But the idea is that you bring in all these people with no social safety net. And the people that find a niche within the market, even, you know, of course you have doctors and engineers and people who provide uh, very obvious benefits to your society, but you also have people who are entrepreneurs who maybe in their home country, they were a rice farmer, but they can come over here and they can open a 7-Eleven. They can take out a business loan and, and uh, start a small business like that and provide some small bit of, of benefit for a local neighborhood. Uh, maybe they even move over here and, and do exactly what they did in their foreign country. Perhaps they have, uh, I know my father worked for a, a company that sold seed. And as America tried to move into rice production, they brought over a gentleman from China. And that was his job was to kind of teach the, the round eyes how to, to grow rice in this country uh, appropriately. And, and that's something that 
even coming from there, he was able to come over, slowly assimilate into our culture while also bringing over benefits from his own culture that we could learn from and, and strengthen our own resolve here in the States. Mm-hmm. And what, what really blows my mind is, is how it's lost on us that like the United States is a nation of immigrants. Like you said, like there has been once upon a time, a free flow of people, goods and ideas into this country. I mean, I guess the two major ports would be San Francisco and the, in the, or in the West. And then um, is it Ellis Island mm-hmm. in New York in, in the, in the East. And so um, it is, it is crazy though, to think that like, how did we come from a nation of immigrants from the landing of the Mayflower to all of the extensive European and Asian immigration um, to now it's like, you, you don't belong here. It's like, well, technically none of us belong here. And so, and then that goes back to this idea of like having a nation state and being defined geographically just by your birth. And that now all of a sudden you're subject to the rules and the whims of, of, because that, of that state. Unfortunate you know, enough that your parents had sex in Venezuela and that you yeah. happen to be be birthed into this world in a, a socialist nightmare situation kind of sucks that I can then sit here and go like, well, you know, and, and somebody who would be, this is very similar to the, uh, the white privilege argument or just privilege in general, that uh, do we have the right to this land that somebody drew lines on a map for uh, simply because we were born here? Uh, I think it's also interesting because how often do these borders change? Mm-hmm. Do if I was a person of French descent and the Louisiana purchase happened in America, why, because some political despot wanted to fund a war in Europe, am I now required to give up my ancestral lands in my own eyes to somebody else simply because they just, they needed some quick cash flow. Yeah. And the same, I mean, even a more specific, um, example comes into like Alsace Lorraine because after the Franco um after the Franco Prussian war, you know, that was a that was a region that France ceded to Germany. And now that has that is not a particularly homogenized area because there's a lot of French and a lot of Germans in those particular regions. And so now all of a sudden Alsace Lorraine becomes German, even though it's been French for several hundred years. And then now it's then it remains German for I guess between 1871 and 1819 or 1918. But it's just one of those things. Like now all of a sudden, like these people are at the whims of these big forces and this right. movement of national borders. When it's like, dude, I just want to be left alone on my property. And that's a that's a different I, I think that's a different argument that we're trying and to I'm, get into. I'm not hundred percent sure that it is a different argument because I think that you do run in in contradiction with each other when it comes to private property versus state property because they may call it public land. They may say it's for all of us, but if they decide they want to build a highway there, they might just muscle you out of it. Or if they decide they need to sell it to another country for their own state agenda, all of a sudden your private property is pretty null and void. You have to just cross your fingers and hope that your new overlords continue to recognize your own private property. Your your Um, claim to that land. No, that's a really good point. And I think that's a, a lot of the, the issue we run into is, as libertarians because we believe in essentially parsing this all out to private property and letting everybody have their own plot of land. And uh, and the issue with that being that when you have an overbearing state that is going to claim that land for itself, you're really only renting. You never actually own your own land. If the, the state itself decides it needs that land uh, for a, a military base or what be it, they don't have any problem violating your personal property rights for it. Right. Imminent domain. I mean, how many, I'm trying to think the last big example I can think of, which would be the new Dallas Cowboys stadium. I mean, how many, how many homes did they seize? They essentially gave them below fair market value for their home, which in that case, it's like, if you want my house to build a nice new football stadium, I deserve above fair market value. You know, it's not even fair market value is not satisfactory because this is my home. I own this. And if the state wants to come in and claim it so that they can give it to Jerry Jones and build a billion dollar stadium. Well, then and I deserve certainly there are more f- than fair market value. <laughs> and certainly there are few more uh, morally correct and, and uh, aspirational, beautiful ideas uh, of reasons. You know, there are, there are a lot of bad way reasons the state takes your property, but to build a, a football stadium for the greatest football team that the nation's ever seen, I can understand where somebody might take that leap. But that hasn't cow- won a Super Bowl in how long? <laughs> It's it's been a minute. Uh, any yeah. day, 
the greatest. <laughs> shut up. Miss me with that greatest football team. Uh, that is a little joke there. I'm a bit of a cowboy fan myself. Um, I did want to, to circle back a bit. Uh, I didn't finish my thought earlier before we went on a tangent, but the the idea of having this social safety net uh, and the part of the benefit of it was we used to have these open borders where we allowed everybody to come in and try to fill these niches, as I was saying, or if you had an overwhelming skill set that uh, you simply would just exist in the society. The other side of that was that there wasn't a social safety net. So there was a large amount of immigration both to and from this country. And a lot of people tend to overlook that when they take into the immigration argument these days that we had much higher levels of immigration to this country in the past, but we also had much higher levels of immigration from this country in the past. And essentially what that system did was you allowed everyone to come in and those who were able to provide a benefit to your society were the ones who found a foothold here and stayed and tried to assimilate. And then your people who were not as productive or could not find a niche and could not provide value to the marketplace, they would typically move back home to their home countries or move on to another country where they might have a better chance at competing, uh, maybe one that was more culturally uh, close to them or had a less of a language barrier, whatever the case may be. Um, but from my understanding of it, most of these people tended to go back home. If they were going to live in in a impoverished state, then they would rather live in an impoverished state where they're close to family and a culture that they understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes that, perfect sense. And I think that that did nothing but strengthen America. I think that that's, that's the reason we used to look at immigration as this thing that made this a great nation is because we allowed a system where everybody could come in. But what we really did is we gave them the opportunity to prove that they could provide value to this nation in order mm-hmm. to stay here. Yeah. And it, when you put it that way, I mean, I know that there's a strong case and that's why I'd like to bring on Matt Mitchell and talk, uh, talk to him about this, but it, but it does seem like immigration just, it follows very basic economic principles, right? It's supply and demand is, you know, if there is a, if there's a demand for a particular type of labor and this um, skill set comes from another country, then it would only make sense to immigrate to that country and provide that skill set. But then as soon as, you know, that demand shrinks or that demand's not there, then you either have to find new um, way, you know, it, immigration, it looks like a, it, it follows the same patterns like seeking a job, right? It's like, so if you go to a, like where I live, there's not a ton of economic opportunity, right? There's a few major employers in town. And then outside of that, it's all a lot of service jobs. Um, and so it's one of those things like you either find your niche in one of the six, seven industries that this town actually provides or you create your own, right? You know, there's, there's a saying up here. It's like, don't um, like, if you want something done, you start the business up here because no one else is doing it. Um, and, and that's what I'm in the process of doing is starting up my own business. Um, but um, it is, it, it does, it, it follows the same economic, it, it, it seems like it just follows the basic patterns of economics. It's all supply and demand. And, and it leads me to say that it's like, okay, well, we know that free trade and free movement of goods and people or like free trade of goods and ideas are, are beneficial for the market. So why wouldn't a free trade or not a free trade of people because that's slavery, um, a free movement, um, <laughs> a freedom of movement for people, why would that also not be beneficial? And I think that that goes back to your idea of like the welfare state and something though, just I want to touch on real fast because it's a really really interesting tangent. And then we can, you know, hop into like some open border versus private property, that type of stuff is this concept called circular migration. And Malcolm Gladwell does a far better job than I am going to ever do. Um, explaining this in his podcast revisionist history. I believe it's in season three. I think it's general Chapman's last stand is the title of the episode for anybody who wants to actually go listen to that. But just a quick little framework. General Chapman is the person who is responsible, quote unquote, for like the current border situation in America. Not so much like because um, this he was employed back in the 80s, um, but that actually set up what is going on in this country today. And his mission when he was a Marine Corps general was um, securing the very porous and fluid border between North and South of Vietnam. And so this is the context of, you know, of a man who's been charged with shoring up America's southern border, who takes border security extremely seriously because, you know, you're in a war with the communists and you can't have can't have communists running running amok in this country. So we have to secure the border. But anyways, 
when he was tasked with securing the southern border, the border was extremely easy to cross, you know, and people would cross for the working season and then return home once the season was over, right? That's this movement of human capital. And they call it circular migration because they would come up from Mexico into America, particularly Arizona, Texas, California, right? Kind of this big agricultural area of the South. And then when the working season was done, they would take that money and they would go home. Now, I, you can make the argument like, oh, you want that money staying in this economy, but it's like, ah, whatever. Um, but then as, as border security increases and the crossing becomes a little bit more risky, they start to stay because it's not the it's not the crossing from America to Mexico that becomes more dangerous. It's the crossing from Mexico back to America. And as that and as that danger and difficulty increases, well then they put down roots. So now the now the working members of that family are staying here and sending money back home to Mexico. Well it's only you can only embed yourself so long until you're like, you know what, this absolutely sucks. I'd like my family to be here. There's no economic opportunities in Mexico that can provide me this type of income. So I'm going to bring my family over here. And so, and that's what, that's what actually leads to this idea of like long-term illegal immigration, because before they closed the border and made it more difficult, these people were coming up here, but they were also going home too, which is actually a really beautiful example of like how this freedom of movement can, can happen because yeah, they would much rather be in Mexico actually with their family and their friends in a similar culture. But then as it becomes more and more difficult then, all right, I guess I'm going to stay. Okay, if I'm going to stay, I'm going to bring my family over here. And then that leads you to this, this crisis where we have so many, quote unquote, illegal immigrants who are embedded into this culture. And it's a, a mutually beneficial situation as well. I mean, these farmers need help during the harvest season. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, and we kind of talked about that earlier, where do you get this help if you don't have immigration? Do you go into the, the inner cities and find some kid who doesn't have a job, who's going to be a completely unskilled laborer that you're going to have to pay more because of American minimum wages. Uh, so you're going to get less value for a higher wage that you're paying somebody um, versus what we have now where they're allowed to bring in people in green cards to work. We even grew up in an area where there were a lot of South Africans that would come over. These are, you know, 26 year old men would come over and stay in a four bedroom house and, and work a summer or two. And, and, uh, create some wealth. It usually is kind of like a, a I guess a, their version of Rumspringer was kind of what it was. It seemed like where they get to have one last go at it before they go back home to South Africa and settle down and get married and have kids. So it's a lot of, well, it's, uh, what's really interesting about that is a lot of those farmers, if you're talking, if you're specifically talking about the farmers in our area from South Africa is that they were coming over here because the government had seized their farmland um, in the oh, reverse, yes, that's right. In, in the reverse apartheid, you know, and that's why that's why a lot of the South Africans that at least I've interacted with are extremely are extremely racist, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> because they 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 don't like the fact that the dark skinned person took their their farmland. And now, I mean, we are always you're always going to get into someone was here first, and we've taken someone's land. Um, and I I don't I don't really have a I don't have the the fortitude to dive into that particular I mean, one I, right now. I personally think that we should give back uh, Europe to the Neanderthals immediately. <laughs> Amen. Bring them back. Um, <laughs> which I think that that's a, that's a good transition to like open borders and private property. So the idea of like private property and borders, it's essentially like the anarcho-capitalist model, right? The movements of goods and people would be treated the same. It would be mutually agreed upon by both the sender and the receiver. Um, that actually sounds a lot like, like trading slaves. And so um, the er, another way to put that would be like the immigrant and the um, native landowner. It would be agreed upon that like, yes, you can come through here or no, you cannot. And what's really important in this, and what's important to note in this model is that there's no centralized government and there's no real distinction between like a domestic and foreign citizen. It is simply the property owner deciding what to allow through their property and anyone else who is moving through it. And I think a lot of people have, uh, have trouble accepting the idea of the entire world being parsed out into private property because it's like, every bit of movement that we make over a mass areas is 
public property. Oh, it's the the highway system, the airport systems. Mm-hmm. Um, although I guess you could argue airports be pretty easy transition into private property. It's simply a an area for them to land and take off. But we yeah. have this perception of why you couldn't drive across, across the country on private property because every old hermit just wants you to stay off of it. Um, I think the part of that that that's not taking into consideration is the economic side of it. Mm-hmm. If you have private property and you want to generate wealth out of it, certainly you can become a farmer or a rancher. Or you can build a road. Or you can build a road. And, and, and you can build a gas every station. Every time they roll through it. Exactly. You, can, you could build uh, your own version of Disneyland and bring in tourism to your private property. Um, I think it's short-sighted to think that private property is going to be every single one of them is going to become a farmer or ranch where they don't allow people to pass through. I think there's plenty of private property that would actually encourage tourism or encourage uh, transient people in order to try to pull some of their value from them uh, and, and make some money off of these people who are trying to move through your private property. There's no reason to think that that would be non-existent in a, a area devoid of a state. Yeah, and it it don't. I know we're always back to the stupid roads issue, and I don't know why we're why libertarians are so why we're so I don't know why we talk about roads so much. Um, but it it does go to that. It's like in a world where you would have everything private property, including like the border, right? So it's like if this like borders like borderlands, quote unquote, would be private property, then it is up to that private property owner to decide who gets to move through, how much, what gets to come through. But it also blows my mind that people would say like if there's like there's there would be a market need for roads there would be a market need for a a avenue for goods and people to transit so why would someone like why why do they think that everybody would just like shut down everything and like dude if i was if i if i owned property in a place that i could build a road i'm building a road and i'm putting it and people are like oh like private roads it's like they're called toll roads right and if you live in a major if you live in a major metropolitan area you probably take them quite often i don't pay them because i just i just like go through the toll road and hope they never, they never come get me. <laughs> hope you never get, get that letter. Over. Yeah. Oh, that's I, typically I what I do is I, <laughs> I get an alert that I owe them an extra uh, 10% on it or, or uh, an extra zero to my toll. And that's typically when I end up paying it is, Oh crap, maybe I should finally get that taken care of. Um, but you're exactly that- right. And I think a lot of people have that view of like, Oh, so you're just going to have private roads. You're just going to have everybody get told to death with all these. And the, the answer to that is sure. You're going to pay a toll, but, you're not going to pay those taxes that built the road in the first place that are perpetually going up. There's also going to be a little more of an incentive for them to build a road. That's going to last a hell of a lot longer. A nice because road, of, right? A nice road because in a, nice the current road. situation you have, what's the incentive for them to build a, a system that lasts forever to build a road. That's going to last 10,000 years. It's nil. They're going to suck your tax money out next year. They're going to quote unquote, generate jobs, which is this beautiful thing. Uh, through the government by simply building shit roads with subpar employment and doing it all again next year and, and fucking up traffic in the meantime. Yeah. And the, the road one resonates with me because I'm, I mean, Logan's been to where I'm located, but we, we have a lot of roads and the, the reason for that is long winded and it's essentially just poor. It's poor central planning is what it is. Um, that's, that's essentially or like, another way to I say that is it's central planning. Yeah, um, that's yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, but we have like 110 miles worth of roads, which if you take that to a comparable city, like uh, that would be a tax base of like 12 to 15,000 people, right? We have 1200 people. And so most of our roads are absolute trash. And why? Because and there's well, because there's no there's no like private incentive to make the road any better. And that's that's a that's a completely different um topic. I don't even want to start even start talking about the roads where I live right now. Um, but another another kind of really interesting aspect is that um even though the, the libertarian position leans towards like open borders, freedom of movement, both Rothbard and Hoppe, and that's Hans Hermann Hoppe, um, thought that immigration would be adequately resolved in a libertarian society through private ownership, right? So at this point, and that kind of gets us into this idea of like open or restrictive immigration. And this idea kind of comes down to just like the freedom of movement or another way to look at it would be uh, the, the battle between utopia and realpolitik. 
um, the, utop- the utopian argument would go that the government has no right to, to restrict or to meddle in people's choice to migrate, thus enforcement of borders is illegal. And then Hoppe's argument against that, um, which he built on from Rothbard's, was that, well, you know what, the government has no right to invite or even subsidize immigrants to a country because that will always be at the tax, that will always be at the expense of the resident taxpayer, thus it it is a violation of their property rights. And it's a, I think that we are going to do like a full deep dive into one of Hoppe's arguments for one of our upcoming episodes. And that is the libertarian case for free trade and restricted immigration. And I always think that's interesting too, because I definitely see where Hoppe is coming from, but I still think that that kind of hinges on us having this large social safety net. And that if you were to, remove what the state has put in front of us that the these hurdles the state has put in front of free and open immigration that i think there is a a possibility to get the best of both worlds where you're going to benefit economically uh and also allow people to have freedom of movement and association um and rather that it's just this leviathan of a state standing in the way and that the when a world of property rights, of personal property rights, private property rights, where you are able to build up your own land, create value, pass it on to your children, uh, you are incentivized to create something of value for the market. Even if you're that hermit who doesn't allow a soul on your land ever, you still have to, at some point, take value from that land in the form of agriculture or farm uh, ranching and export that to the rest of the world in order to bring in more value so that you can continue your own uh, projects on that land. Um, It would be a very small representation of the world that would become completely self-sufficient. It is possible. You can go into a commune. And I guess that's a point we should make too, that these private property, I guess, could be um, private in the sense of a, a commune that is set up that we as a collective have this private ownership over this property uh, to some extent. Um, that it wouldn't necessarily have to be under one person's name, but you could create a self-sustaining property. But every bit of market influence and the way trade works and benefits people shows that you would benefit more by specializing in a few things that you could do really well, exporting those goods and importing the ones that you are not as good at making. Um, so I think it just would l- simply lead to a free market economy where people have uh, voluntary trading of goods and everybody benefits everybody else uh, versus when you have a state that gets to draw these lines, you're now no longer creating for other people throughout. You're, you're now part of this tax cattle system. So you're, you're no longer finding a niche in which to fit in and trading with the neighbors around you, but rather you're funneling money up to the top to where this central planning model can now trickle down all the money where they see fit best, uh, which seems to be predominantly in creating drone bombs to murder brown children in the Middle (laughs) East currently. Yeah, no doubt. We're keeping lots of people in jail. And I think that what I'm always drawn back to this idea that that the arguments against like anarchy or libertarianism, because I'm not even like a full-blown anarchist, you know, I bounce between like libertarian to minarchist and somewhere in between on the varying days, you know, it's like, I'm not even a full-blown anarchist. Um, but I do believe in voluntary transactions in all, in all regards of life. And so I guess that makes me a volunteerist, but, um, what I don't understand is why people think that if we started to, if you started to privatize things, if you started to, to shift um, ownership of, of goods and, and, uh, and of borders. And if you, you like, if you eliminated state borders and you just had private property, like why, I don't understand why people think that the people that are doing that, that like own that property are going to all of a sudden negate economics, right? We know that free trade is good. We know that interacting with our neighbor is mutually beneficial for everybody. And so, and Hoppe makes a really interesting argument. Um, in his uh, in that article where he says that you might not even want to live in you know he goes into like 
says very specific races and whatnot, but it's like, you can summarize it to, you might not want to live in any neighborhood composed of any concentration of any ethnicity whatsoever, but that doesn't mean that you don't want to not trade with them for both benefits, you know? And I think to, to really sum it up, um, he, he, and I quote him, it is precisely the absolute voluntariness of human association and separation, the absence of any form of forced integration, which makes peaceful relationships free trade between racially, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, or culturally distinct people possible. And that one, that one does resonate with me because I just don't, I can't fathom like why all of a sudden, if you, if you got rid of the state, you made private, you made all property private, why would all of a sudden we would neglect hundreds of years of economics and innovation and because we know that that free trade is beneficial for everybody we all know that capitalism mm-hmm. in it you know in its essence has raised the tide of for all the boats in the world right like just look at how many people who are living in how much has that reduced in the last 70 years last 50 years right all of these things are good because there has been a free trade of goods and services and people across the globe. And I think that's exactly the beauty of, of uh, the philosophy that you and I have bought into in this libertarian type of system where you don't, we are not as pious to believe that we can convince the world not to be racist or that we can convince the world to all play nice and all see each other as equals. Rather, we believe in creating a situation that's going to take advantage of the incentive base and that your incentive in a free market is going to be to provide value for others so that you have something to bring to the table to trade for the things you need. And even if you hate that other group, your incentive is still going to be not to go out and have war with them and to, to take away their ability to produce the thing they're good at, but rather to work peacefully, even if you can't stand the people on the other side of the fence, so that you can trade your goods, get what you need out of it, they get what they need out of it. And who cares if we don't like what they're doing over there? At that point, we at least have worked a mutually beneficial trade out and we can go back to living the life we see fit and talking shit about the guys over there that have a different skin color than us. Mm-hmm. And who cares about it at that point? Um, and with that same ilk of, of creating the incentives, I think that's a huge problem of what we have with this welfare state right now. And that we used to have a system where there was plenty of opportunity available in America. And so the incentive was you can come here Try to find your niche, create a market value, and provide value to everybody else around you and, and therefore find a foothold in this country. So the incentive mm-hmm. was to come over here and find a way to provide value. Mm-hmm. Now we have created this large welfare state where we have a new incentive base that is you can come to this country and provide value and you're going to get taxed and get to pay for everybody else that comes in, which is still beneficial for a lot of people who are in bad countries. It's still not that America is the worst place in the world to live, uh, even with those factors. But there's also this new looming incentive base Mm -hmm. where if you are absolutely destitute, you have zero skills in life and you have zero opportunity to provide anything of value to this new area, you can still get across that border, find your way into this safety net, and now you have become a leech upon the taxpayers of that land. And it's still a much better situation than you were in. So you're definitely incentivized to do so. There's no reason for you not to cross that border from an individual perspective because it will be a better situation for you and your family. But you're no longer encouraged to create any kind of value for this place you're moving into to further uh, the standing of that land any. You're rather just trying to cross that land so that you can get your hand around the teat of the taxpayer at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, another way to, I mean, if you extrapolate that out, because it, yeah, sure. At the individual level, of course, the incentive is there, but then, you know, and I think that that is what Rothbard and Hoppe made the argument against open borders. And that's something that Logan stated earlier in the podcast that the welfare state and the befin- and the benefits of a particular society are incompatible with open immigration because yeah, for sure. One person moving here, 10 people moving here, a hundred people, a hundred thousand moving here. But what is that threshold? to where now you have had so much open immigration that um, the society has been plundered. You know, and that our, that civilization is now essentially like now it's strained and then it becomes um, then becomes, you know, burdened to the point of uh, non-function. And then it just collapses. Right. Because it is 
I, I get it that if I'm growing up in the slums of a third world country, well, hell, I'd much rather be poor on the streets of America. And no one's going to fault anybody for wanting to further their own life. I certainly don't. But if we look at the at the system as it stands today, right, because we've been talking about this nice idealistic where everybody respects property rights. And that means that we also respect the person because, you know, you you are you're a private being yourself. And so in a perfect world where everybody is honky dory and, and sings kumbaya and we respect each other and voluntary transactions, then, yeah, then this could work. But in the situation that we have today. An open border is in it's incompatible with just um, with the welfare state like those two things are diametrically opposed and we cannot sustain both of them because and someone someone put it this way to me and they worked in they worked in R&D for the Air Force. Right. They you know, it's one of those he, he came from came from the division where if they need an airfield or they need a bomb, if they need a range to go test missiles, they got it. The government, the general just cut him a check. There it is. You go, go do what you need, you know? And it's like, he is from the, he's from the, the branch of the military that spends a lot of money. And he said that if you take the American, like, like what, what America does with its tax dollars, he says, you know what? There's someone punched a, someone punched a pretty big hole in the side of the bucket with the U S military expenditures. You're right. He's like, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of water. There's a, there's a decent amount of water coming out of that hole. He's like, but if you look at what we've created with our welfare state and this policy of of immigration, especially through the Obama administration, he says it's like he says what that has done. Someone has taken twice the size of the hole in the side of the bucket and they've punched it right in the bottom of it. And we're just pouring money out every single year to these programs. And it's unsustainable. And that and that's where I do resonate with Hoppe on this whole idea like it is. For, to allow just open immigration and ha- that has to be supported by social programs funded by taxpayers, that is that is aggression against me, that is aggression against you, and that is aggression of every single patient, a person that has to pay homage to Uncle Sam so that he doesn't come and throw us in the cage next year. Right, and it's uh, probably not coincidental that every 18-year-old liberal arts college student who's made zero dollars in their lifetime is a hundred percent for opening up those borders and paying all the welfare money out. Um, yeah. it's, it's difficult to be on the, uh, the side of being the tax cattle. Um, it really is. It, it really it, is. I've had that shift in the last couple of years where it's like, I used to look forward, <laughs> I used to, look forward to tax season. Like, Boy, howdy, I'm getting a refund. And then, then it's like my accountants, she's like, Hey, you owe the government X amount of money. It's like, that's oh, more no. money. Like I owe the government more money in taxes than I made in like the entire year of 2018. I was like, wait, how is this? Like, no, this isn't right. I, I want to, I don't want to go back because I hated being destitute, but it's also like, could I also not pay that much money in taxes this year? It really make my heart warm. And imagine what that money could have been reappropriated to, to uh, benefit your own community. Even if it was mm-hmm. something you did selfishly for yourself, uh, it could have just as easily been something where you're talking about some bad roads in your neighborhood. Maybe Matthew Billingsley Avenue gets built and, and your town has a brand new uh, private nice road little, to use. Nice little. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do. Well, that's, that's a whole different, <laughs> it's a whole different conversation. <laughs> but uh, I think it is, it is interesting though, to, that we have to try to reconcile this in the world that we live in today, because we can talk about hypotheticals. We can talk about perfect ideals. We can talk about all of these things, but it's like, as it stands today, one of two things has to give either we have to restrict immigration to this country and do it by a merit-based system. And of course there's going to be, there has to be room for asylum seekers because we have destroyed several countries with our foreign policy. And then at that point, it's like, we actually do have a responsibility to these people to try to, um, you know, if we destroyed your country, then the least we can do is, you know, like let you in and try to help you rebuild your life because we were a hometown into oblivion. Um, but and again, know, it's, uh, so I think that's, that's kind of come bringing us back to this collective, this uh, coerced view of the world again, where in an area where everything's privatized, I'm not, going into somebody else's land to bomb weddings and hospitals to ruin their infrastructure and forcing this uh, crisis of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? People who are trying to escape war refugees. 
mm-hmm. um, that these are things that most of us didn't co-sign. Certainly none of us made the decision to do so. It was made on our behalf, on behest of the government um, and exacerbates this exact situation where they're going and creating havoc uh, through tariffs and, and embargoes in South America and, and straight up bombing people in the Middle East. And it forces these places to become more destitute and to, to immigrate to new places. Um, it also adds to the other issue that above the welfare state, I mean, welfare state's probably number one. That's the main reason we can't have open borders right now. But not far behind that is the issue of security, whether it be the, the drug cartels or uh, the people who are seeking to acts of terrorism because they watched family members die or had their democratically elected leader murdered by terrorists who were funded directly by American tax dollars. Uh, and that these become your responsibility now because of these poor decisions made by our state who owns you, who they want to claim that you're part of the state and the state represents you. And yet they will with zero problem, go over to another country and murder people and dispose large amounts of refugees. And then it comes back to you. Well, we can't not help them. You have to take up the money. We have to use your tax dollars now in order to help these refugees out because it was a decision that we all made when it was not a decision we all made. It was a decision that a couple hundred people in Washington made because it was beneficial to them and they all own a little piece of Raytheon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was, what goes through my mind is um, I was thinking specifically about Europe, Europe and uh, in this, um, in the Syrian uh, refugee crisis, right? Because um, you know, they, they flee to Turkey because there's a civil war going on and super ugly. And, you know, Syria just becomes the next, uh, the next piece on the geopolitical chessboard. And so you've got Russia and America backing different factions and it's happening in people's backyards. So of course they leave. And so then they go to Turkey and then Turkey, you know, is having some strained relations with the EU. And so they're like, all right, you know what, fine, have at it. We're, you know, we're not going to keep you guys in here. And so they open up, they open up travel into great. And so at that point, like once you're in, you know, you have that freedom of movement. And so that's when you get all of these people. And I'm just, it's just like this big web in my mind um, that's unraveling because you get, so you have a centralized crisis that then moves a bunch of people to one particular area. This particular area says, you know, I can't deal with all of this have at it, you know, let's kind of disperse this problem amongst the continent. And then you get all of these countries, like I think of Scandinavia specifically, like Finland and Norway and Sweden, where they're having problems with these refugees and violence is going up. And the society is starting to reject this idea because they're like, well, what are these people even doing to participate in our our society? So why should they get the benefit of, you know, and it's really interesting to see the blowback of foreign policy in a human sense when it comes to immigration and migration and just like this refugee crisis. And I think that's the, the easiest way to do this is we, the easiest way to stop this is we stop, we stop creating these, these crises. Now, of course, there's always going to be these natural famines, right? Like the potato famine in Ireland, which, you know, brought over one point something million Irish. Um, you know, there's always going to be these natural disasters. They're going to cause people to move from one location to another. But once again, back to the state being the problem when, with all of this, is that, you know what, a lot of this migration that we don't like, especially on the southern border, would be alleviated if we stopped, if we didn't have 50 years of, of meddling in their local politics, right? If the right. CIA didn't go in there and back United Fruit Company to lead the genocide in uh, Guatemala, if we didn't give, if Coca-Cola didn't fund death panels in yeah. Nicaragua, if we didn't- If Monsanto support- didn't uh, spray half of Mexico's cropland with a uh, Roundup ground killer. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's so many things that we can look at that, that America, that our foreign policy perpetuated and led by the state has created this crisis if the cia didn't fund the narcos because it's easier to have just like one stable supply of drugs in the country than the violence of having several warring cartels so it's like so we're just going to put our hat behind these guys you know and so it's like once again once again once again the state is mucking it up for everybody right and these uh what it will claim as solutions and as its fixing of these problems 
a lot of these problems, first of all, are generated by the state itself. Uh, but then even moreover, it's not finding adequate solutions to solve it. In fact, it's often working in the exact opposite direction where it's causing more problems than were originally there. Uh, and, and I think that's just another long, uh, another point in the long list of uh, bullet points of why the, the state and central planning is a bad idea when individuals can make better decisions for themselves and that private property on the individual level seems to be the best solution to a lot of these issues. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, immigration and we, I know we've just kind of like meandered and touched on a lot of stuff and we are going to, we are going to get concentrated over the next several weeks and focus on several of these issues and do deep dives into them and try to expand the conversation, right? Because we just don't want to do overviews all the time, but we did think it was a good place to start with this particular idea, like um, kind of the libertarian take on just the movement in general. And so over the next couple of weeks, we are going to do some, some deep dives into some of these topics. Um, but I, it's just, it's just interesting though, to, to think about, how much of this, how much of these problems could be alleviated by, by just private property and getting the state out of it? You know, and if I'm, once again, like we said last week, if you, if we weren't, if we severely declogged the state, if not just got rid of it tomorrow, society is not perfect. It's like the cure for cancer. Just because we cured cancer tomorrow does not mean that society does not have its ailments that are going to cost money, that is going to cause suffering. You know, it's like we're not going to create utopia by getting rid of the state. But I think the immigration is just one of those, uh, just one more aspect that if you got the state out of it, that we could solve, you know, we could, we could work on actually starting to solve this and there would be many different solutions for it. And that's okay. Yeah. We could at least get it headed in the right direction. And certainly like Matthew said, we, we'd like to reiterate this because a lot of people tend to take the stance when you're arguing libertarian ideas that, well, Hey, I found this one thing that's not perfect about your idea. Therefore that delegitimizes the entire idea of anarchy, minarchy and libertarianism. But for you to take that stance, you have to then be arguing that our current situation is perfect. And we have a far from perfect. I mean, you, you, people who would argue that we need the welfare state, that it's the, the only thing keeping these people out of it, I would, you know, first of all, say that I think there are plenty of avenues for private people to take care of their communities and to find ways to, uh, mm -hmm. and I think even maybe find the people who are more deserving. There are different types of homeless people. There are people who are dealing with schizophrenia and bipolar issues and, and things like that and can't overcome them without help. And there are also people who just like heroin more than work and they would rather do that all day long. Um, and even on that level, there some of those people deserve help because they've been so drawn in. Maybe they got on some opiates uh, during an injury, a car wreck or something and just can't get off of them without help. Um, but you're much more likely on an individual level rather than a central planning level to be able to identify the people who desire to get off the streets, desire to, use the welfare system for the right reason, which is to get back on your feet or right. Who generally need help because of circumstances outside of their control um, versus now. And I would also argue how, how's that welfare system working currently? How many people, <laughs> how, how they doing so far? Yeah, how many people do you see out there? How many homeless people are there underneath the uh, I 35 and downtown Austin right now? How many children go without meals every day in America? Uh, there are plenty of things that the state is not taking care of with this welfare system where uh, if somebody's going to stand in front of you and argue that it's impossible for us to do without, you have to point out also all the fallacies within the own, our own current system. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to reiterate what we said last week, and this is from Michael Malice, any objections to anarchy are just observations of the status quo. Cause that's nope. all it is. That's you know? exactly right. That's it. Cause <laughs> it's like, Oh, well, this isn't perfect. It's like, yeah. As opposed to what, I mean, I know Johnny Profita peddling fiction says this all the time. How are they doing so far? And I think that um, we can we can probably wrap up there on this one um, with with this idea that this like so yeah I I get it that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we didn't cover and we weren't super clear and concise on all of it but like I said we just wanted to do a quick little overview and I do promise over the next several weeks that we are going to focus on particular issues and dive into the pro and against and kind of purse out some of the 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 more nuances of these ideas so that we can try to, you know, try to 
try to try to tackle this one together. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to it. And Matthew and I sat down to do an episode on borders and immigration. And uh, I think within 15 minutes, we're like, this is not going to be one episode. This is obviously a much larger uh, issue than we can solve with just a few libertarian points. And I think it's also a fun one because it is one of these nuanced ones where there are people who are libertarian supporters that are on both sides of the aisle on this one. Uh, there are people who make arguments for for pro and con, and I think it's important for us to have a a well pursed out, researched view on exactly why we feel the way we do, and and hopefully to share that knowledge with you guys in the coming weeks. Absolutely, Logan. Got anything else? Hey, just keep it up, guys. People over politics. Uh, watch what people do, not what people say, and and understand that just because somebody doesn't know exactly. Uh, yet that they should be living a libertarian society uh, that it doesn't mean they're a bad person. They just haven't uh, done the, the correct reading yet. Absolutely. Libertarians diligently plotting to take over the world and leave you alone. Well, guys, thank you very much for listening to against the mob podcast, Logan Carpenter, Matthew Billingsley. If you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star review. Do it. Just, just do it right now. Go to Apple podcasts, give us a five-star review, do it, do it, do it, do it. Please like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, you know, engage with us on social media. Uh, we really appreciate it. Any sort of interaction is welcome. If, if you like it, let us know. If you don't, let us know. If you want to push back against something, then please, you know, let us uh, reach out to us and we can either have that conversation or we can address your pushback in an episode. Um, if you really if you really want to push back on something and hit me up and we'll have you on the show and, you know, we'll just have a nice and and what we'll do in that situation is we'll probably have one of us just be the moderator because I believe in the you know, it's not fair to take someone on two on one. So in that case, we would have one of us step back to just be the moderator and then we'd let the other one um, debate some ideas. But anyways, guys, thank you for listening. As always, uh, remember, we fight against the mob with people over politics. See you next week.